Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our entire family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which I go more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which she examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org. Now, let's welcome our guests to this month's podcast. Welcome to the August edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is Mike Nolan, a longtime employee, consultant, and volunteer for U.S. Chess. We're recording live at the U.S. Open in Cherry Hill, New Jersey on August 5th. He is here because after serving as parliamentarian for the delegates' meetings from 1990 through 2016, he was tapped to serve again this year after the recent death of Ken Ballou. Mike graduated from Northwestern University in 1972 and received an MBA from the University of Nebraska in 1980. He has served as chair of the Scholastics, Bylaws, and Finance Committees. Many people now directly associate Mike with our IT systems. He first started talking to DUS Chess about IT issues in 1986, started working with us on database issues in 1998, became a paid consultant in 2004, and an employee in 2013, before finally retiring in 2016, but still advising us on IT issues as a consultant. He is a recipient of the Special Services Award and Distinguished Service Awards from U.S. Chess. At home in Nebraska, he served as the Nebraska State President and editor of their magazine for several years. Welcome to One Move at a Time, Mike. Boy, that's an extensive resume just in the chess world. That doesn't even get into what you've done outside of chess. Um, But I always like to start this show talking about how someone got started in chess. So talk about your beginnings. Well, let's see. I was in fifth grade, and it was during the wintertime. They would play chess at lunchtime in, in the back of the classroom, and I got interested in playing the game, which I knew nothing about at mm-hmm. the time, and um, got involved in playing. And I remember I decided I was going to go buy a chess set. So I, this is back in the days of mail order catalogs. Mm-hmm. I ordered a catalog for, I think, the Montgomery Wards. And I knew it was due to arrive on Tuesday or Wednesday of the next week. And we had a major snowstorm on Monday, and the roads were closed for three days. And I'm going, I know my package is there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, as soon as they got the roads open, it showed up. Uh, but so when did U.S. chess enter the picture, though? Not until I was in college. Now, when I was in high school, we had a chess club. A small, I'm from a small town in Illinois. Uh, we had a chess club, and I thought, gee, I wonder if there are any organizations about chess. So I went off to the library, and I looked at Ulrich's Guide to Publications, which I'm not even sure if it's still around anymore. But it was a guide of all the different publications, and there were two publications out there on chess. One was Chess Life, put out by the U.S. Chess Federation, and the other was was Chess Review. And Chess Review was like $2 less. So, of course, I took the one that was $2 less, and I started getting copies of Chess Review. And this would be early 60s. I graduated from high school at 67. This is about 64 or 65. And I get this, and I'm reading through the magazine. And, of course, this is when Bobby Fischer was, was, you know, the whirlwind that Fischer was in chess. And I remember reading through some of his games and then going, well, this is obviously a draw. And I'm going, I don't understand why it's obviously a draw. I, I had never played in a chess tournament at that point in time. So I wrote a letter to the editor of Chess Review. And I says what's this USCF thing I keep reading about, and why are so many of these games draws? And I got a letter back from Al Horowitz on, he just literally wrote his reply on my letter, and under, what is this USCF thing? He says, that's my competitor. (laughs) And then on the bit about why are so many of these games draws, he said, you'll understand that as you play more. Well, that was 50-some years ago, and I still don't understand (laughs) 
Um, so if this was in the mid-60s, if my memory is correct, it was around 1968 that Chess Review and Chess Life merged. Is Do you, do you happen to know if I'm right there? I don't remember exactly. I think that... You know, I remember the period of time where it was Chess Life and Review was in the early 70s. Um, but I think they bought... I think they bought it from, from Horowitz eh, around 68, 69, thereabouts. And we still own all the rights to all the Chess Review magazines by uh, U.S. Chess has uh, owns that. Um, so you told me that your first chess tournament was actually an event organized by another uh, longtime U.S. Chess volunteer who also just died, Harold Winston. Yeah, the first event I played in was the... Uh, the Pan Am games that Harold Winston organized when he was at the University of Chicago. And I had actually met Harold before that because Harold was active in the Chicago Intercollegiate Chess League and I was, uh, I was active at the North, in the Northwestern mm-hmm. Chess Club and I had met him a couple of things and he was talking about, about this big tournament he was running over mm-hmm. Christmas and I said, ooh, that's cool, I ought to go play in that. So I had to join U.S. Chess in order, in order to play in, in the event and I was like the first alternate on the Northwestern B team. I think the Northwestern A team and the University of Chicago A team tied for first place in the event, if I remember right. Um, but I was the, like the first alternate on the B team, so I didn't play in the first couple of rounds, but I kind of got to watch them. I and I got, actually got involved in playing Risk out in the hall. <laughs> I think I won some money at it. <laughs> and then they finally had me play in, I think it was round three or four, and I got about oh, 55 or so moves in, and I thought I was pretty hopelessly lost. And the coach comes up says, hold on for another five moves when they get to the adjournment. And I'm going... What's an adjournment? Mm. So the very first game I ever played, I had to do an adjournment, even though I know I was lost. Right. But the, the adjournment allowed them to pair the game as a draw for the purposes of seating the team in the next round. Right, right. So I got an early introduction into the, into the uh, peculiarities of tournament chess. Okay. Do you play tournament chess at all anymore? Uh, the last serious tournament I played in was... Uh, the U.S. Open, I think, in Hawaii. And I just I got to the point where I was getting involved in the computer end of things and really wasn't that good a chess player anyhow. And it just got to the point where it wasn't that interesting. I think I played one um, quick chess event mm-hmm. uh, at U.S. Chess when they opened the building in Crossville. I've got to ask, since we we mentioned your IT background uh, with U.S. chess, have you played any online chess, even if it's just for casual? I played a little online chess when ICC first came out a long, long time ago. Mm. And I've looked at the platforms a couple of times, but what I've always liked about chess is you really to sit across from an opponent and stare them down. <laughs> and you can't do that in online chess. You know, I even have one game where I totally scared the, you know, stared the guy down so much that he, he completely missed the, uh, the move I was making, and I ended up winning the game. Uh, so a little bit of the, uh, the towel, the towel stare. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Now, I mentioned we're here at the U.S. Open, and the reason we're here is because of the delegates meeting. Uh, some of our listeners are, are, may not have ever heard of a delegates meeting or know this is something that U.S. Chess mm-hmm. does, but we are a federation, and this is how the, the bylaws are created for our organization. Your first meeting was in back in 1986, and you've been to many of, if not most, or all of the meetings since then. I went to all the meetings from 86 through 2016. I missed 17, 18, 19, and I, of course, last year the meeting was online, and I didn't pay any attention to it. Right, so I'm curious to your impression about how the organization has changed, how delegates' meetings have changed over the decades. Well, I think they've probably gotten better organized. Um, the first meeting that, that I was at was the 86 
uh, delegates meeting. I wasn't a delegate of Nebraska, but I was at the time, I was the president of the Lincoln Chess Foundation, and the Lincoln Chess Foundation received an award at the awards meeting, so I showed up for the meeting. And re-met Harold Winston, who was getting ready to run for president, and uh, met a bunch of other people. And I knew Al Lawrence because Al was originally from Lincoln. He taught English at Lincoln High School. Mm -hmm. And so we had a lot of friends in common, people that he knew that I knew. And that was the year of the Dubai Olympiad um, proposal, was to whether or not U.S. chess should play in that Olympiad, considering that they weren't allowing the Israeli team to play, and they didn't want any Jews to play either. So, uh, and it was a very contentious meeting. And at one point in time, Gary Spurling, former U.S. president, got up and started making a series of complicated motions and pointed out, you know, don't, you know, don't rule me out of order until you hear all the motions I have in mind. And it was just a very complicated thing that not exactly resolved the issue, but at least got it back on track. And I thought that was kind of cool. So the next year in Portland, Gary and I ended up sitting next to each other and he was telling me about why this was a, you know, we were kind of laughing at all the parliamentary stuff that was going on on the floor. And Gary was serving as the parliamentarian unofficially to the Federation at that time. And then in 1990, I ran for the executive board but lost to John Donaldson, while Gary ran for treasurer and won. So Gary went to the incoming president, and said, which I think was Max, and said, I can't really be parliamentarian because, and Harold was the outgoing president, and I said, I can't really be parliamentarian because I'm, gonna, I'm the incoming treasurer and I'm going to be on the floor a lot. So he says, why don't you ask Mike Nolan to do it? So I did that, and I kept on serving as parliamentarian until 2016. Now, that's very specialized knowledge. Where, where did you learn uh, Robert's Rules of Order? Well... I start reading the book cover to cover. Now, if you've ever seen a copy of Robert's Rules, it's, it's you know, thicker than the New York telephone book these days. Uh, I just got the latest edition, and they added, like, an extra 100 pages and made it larger type, so it's a little easier for these old eyes to read. But um, I got interested in that, and I said, there's got to be parliamentary associations. And it turns out the National Association of Parliamentarians uh, which was headquartered in Kansas City, had a Lincoln and a Nebraska chapter. And it's just, so I started going to the meetings, and I became a parliamentarian member of the National Association of Parliamentarians, which requires passing an exam, kind of similar to the local TED exam in terms of its, its complexity. It, you, know, you have to have an understanding of parliamentary procedure, but you don't have to be an expert at it. Uh, and was I was actually the education chairman for the National Association of Parliamentarians Nebraska chapter for a year and thought about taking the registered parliamentarian exam, but I really didn't think I was quite ready, and then something came up and I couldn't go to the convention to take the exam anyhow. So, And then I just, um, I kind of got to the point where I, where I thought I knew enough that I could do what, what what I needed to do for the delegates meetings, and I kind of, uh, the, the parliamentarians, the Lincoln chapter moved their meeting to the same day as the Lincoln Chess Club met. And I says, well, I'm president of the Lincoln Chess Club, I better go to that. So are there competing systems to Robert's Rules of Order? There are at least two different major systems. Um, Robert's Rules of Order was written by, at the time it was a colonel, it was later a general, uh, Henry M. Robert, in, in I think 1872 or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And he was, he had learned after, during his military service, he had learned that people did not run meetings you know, in any coherent fashion. So he sat down and he wrote a little book of, of procedures um, and that book has, is now in its 12th edition. There's a, there's a whole foundation that has been carrying it on. But that's one organization. There's also Langan's Rules, uh, which is used more by governments. It's, it's kind of 
the basis that a lot of state governments and city councils and that, that's kind of their Roberts rules. Then, of course, um, the United States Senate has its own parliamentary parliamentary and actually three of them and they have their own set of rules the house of representatives has its own rules and if you really want to get into it the british house of commons has parliamentary rules that go back to the 1100s and the the uh, it's called hansards and it's a, a full edition of hansards is about 30 feet long Okay. It, it's many, many volumes. Oh. And this is really precedence dating back to uh, around the Treaty of Kent. Okay, well, I'm going to put you on the spot with this question. Um, can you think of what the most complicated ruling you ever had to make as parliamentarian at a delegates meeting was? Uh, it would probably be a meeting all oh, four or five years after I started being parliamentarian in which we ended up with about four different motions on the floor, all on the same subject, but pointing in completely different directions. And my recommendation to the chair was that we basically combine all the meetings. And the prob problem was we didn't know which meeting was actually, which motion was actually mm -hmm. the current motion on the floor, so we weren't sure what you were allowed to talk about. And my suggestion was that we just go ahead and combine all of the, all of the motions into one overarching motion and go into what they call committee of the whole. And so we can discuss almost anything at that point. And then based on that discussion, it was pretty clear at that point what the delegates wanted to do. And is the impetus for getting the ruling correct, is it simply for fairness, or does it tie into Illinois corporate law in any way, shape, or form? A little bit of it is Illinois corporate law, but mostly it's to deal with fairness. Robert's Rules has two fundamental principles. One is that the majority runs, the majority rules. But the other is the minority, and especially a significant majority, their rights have to be respected. And then there's actually a third rule, and is that that's the rights of the individual member have to be respected. So majority rule generally wins, but there are exceptions to that. For example, if you want to cut off debate on, a some, on something, you have to have at least a two-thirds majority willing to say, let's cut off debate. And there are some other cases where you have to have even more of that. Okay. Uh, I, I tell you, when I, when I hear the, Robert, uh, the parliamentary discussions take place on the delegate's floor, my head tends to swim a little bit. I, I think you have to have the right kind of mindset to keep that under control. It's in many respects similar to being a tournament director. You have to know what the rules are, and as, as uh, Ira Riddle once said, you have to know when to break the rules. Mm-hmm. And I'm, there, I've also seen a lot of cases where people kind of use the rules just to bully and get and simply to get their way. Oh, yeah. It, it's um, abusing the, the rule book is, is very common. And there are rules that, interestingly enough, are almost never followed the way they're written in the book. Mm -hmm. They're almost always followed with a different purpose. And the, the classic example of that is the motion to lay something on the table, uh, which is usually just simplified as, you know, move to table. And it's usually done to kind of get rid of something so you don't talk about it anymore. That's really not what the motion was designed for. The motion was designed that you lay something on the table temporarily while you pick up debate on something else that's more important. And then when you're done with that, you take the other motion off the table and go back to discussing it. But in practice, it's more often used as a, as a way to uh, stop debating on something with a simple majority vote because the alternative motion is to, you know, to either vote the motion up or down or to postpone indefinitely. And postpone indefinitely is a motion that requires a two-thirds majority okay. because it's, it's cutting off debate. And any time there's a motion to cut off debate, that usually requires a supermajority. Okay. And another thing that occurs to me, I, I think the uh, parliamentary item or Robert's Rules item that I see misused the most often in our delegates meeting is point of information. And point of order. They're, they're, they're very similar. Uh, a point of information is used as a request 
to get information from somebody else. Uh, in a lot of meetings, and U.S. Chess is no exception to this, point of information is used as a way of talking about the point you're trying to make, which is effectively a form of debate, so it's, it's, it's violating the rules of assigning the floor. Mm -hmm. Well, I, that was actually more talk about Robert's rules than I expected, but, but hearing you talk about it was very interesting to me, so, so thanks for that information. And I'd like to now pivot towards uh, the IT structure of U.S. Chess and our history with the IT structure. But bef why don't we frame this with what was your background in IT before you brought that to U.S. Chess? Well, uh, I've always been interested in computers from the first time I saw one. And I was an electrical engineering major at Northwestern, and they decided to open up an undergraduate department of computer science. And I beat a friend of mine at the door by five minutes mm. to become the first undergraduate member of the department. And so my degree says, you know, Department of Computer Science. I believe there are only seven of us that have such a degree from Northwestern because they subsequently merged computer science and electrical engineering into one department. But my department, mine specifically says computer science. Okay. And so uh, you f first raised the issue about creating an IT department in, at U.S. Chess. Is this correct? Or Well, U.S. Chess had was computerized in about 1977. That's when they went out and bought, I think it was a data general uh, mini computer, probably about the size of a large filing cabinet. Um, and in about 1985 or 1986, they were talking about creating, the, uh, replacing that with something else. And so I wrote a letter to Jerry DeLay, who was then the executive director, and I told him, you know, that uh, I have a, this computer science degree, and I, have, I was, you know, working as a computer programmer. I'd finished my MBA by then and was back doing computer programming, owning my own company, and had several people working for me. And I said, I'm going to be at the U.S. Open in, in uh, you know, New Jersey, um, you want to get together and we can talk about the computer issues? And he said, sure. So he and I sat down, had a lovely uh, breakfast, and we talked about computer issues. And then I don't know how much of that got into that particular process, but it got me interested in that aspect of, of the U.S. chess. And then as, as I got involved as a delegate, I got more interested in that. And in 1998, so that was more years down the road, um, a friend of mine was the technical director of U.S. Chess, and I said, Ernie, would it be okay if you guys sent me copies of the monthly membership file and I start doing some tracking of things historically over time? Because the system they had at the time really did not have a lot of historical records to it. And he said, well, let me check that with the executive director, which was Mike Cavallo. And Mike said, yeah, sure. So they started emailing me these files every month. And the first one I got was in August of 98, and that was a copy of the COBOL membership system. And I think they also sent me the, uh, the DBase system at the time. They had two systems for maintaining membership records. And I started archiving those and, and combining that information together. And in 92 or 93, I did a whole bunch of interesting analysis of trends of memberships and trends of tournaments that uh, really U.S. Chess had never attempted to do. And I presented that information to the delegates, and they were absolutely fascinated by it. And I was invited by the then executive director um, to uh, do some more stuff. And then uh, I wound up being asked if I would be willing to, to work for U.S. Chess. And I says, well, I really have my own business going. I says, but I can, I can do some advising as a consultant. And so we, we set up an arrangement where I was doing a little bit of consulting work for them. And then that executive director left and the new executive, temporary executive that came in was, was Beatrice, 
and then Steve Doyle, I think, was was the was the acting executive director for a while, or no, it wasn't Steve Doyle. It was um, Grant Perks, and Grant said why don't you just write this? And I said, okay. I says, but we don't really have a computer it'll run on. How about I go find a decent computer that'll run on, and I'll develop the whole thing, and when I've got it done, I'll bring it to New York, which was where the office was. And that's exactly what I did. I, I ended up, it was in, in, in the, I, first I went out there and I spent two days sitting in the office in New Windsor just watching everybody and peeking over their shoulder and looking and seeing how were they doing things. And then I said, I think I can do better than that. So I was at the time um, actively involved with the Oracle Relational Database. And I looked at it and I said, well, U.S. Chess can't afford Oracle, but there are some other other packages out there they could use. And I picked one called Postgres. And that's what I started writing in, and by early 2004, that was basically handling all of the membership stuff, and then I got started rewriting the rating system, and that came online in early 2005. It took close to a year to do all the background work. In, in the middle of that, I also got involved in um, writing the first online web store that actually updated memberships. What they had, the online web store they had at the time, you would fill out your form and literally it would email that document to the office and along with your credit card information and they would manually process your credit card on an old credit card type machine and then they would, would put that in a stack to be processed and the average time it took to process that was about a week. So this, these dates you're giving me are very surprising. Um, I th had just thought that some of these systems would have been in place a decade sooner, and now I'm wondering if you hadn't come along and pushed the issue, if they might not have happened for another decade yet. I know. They, my guess is they would have found a different way to do it. They had been through... Um, one of the executive directors actually uh, spent quite a bit of money buying a package that he thought was going to be able to handle all, all the membership issues. And it turned out it really never worked the way they thought they were going to. And so by, by the time he moved on and another executive director came in, they were saying you know, they were receptive to the idea of let's write this ourselves. Let's basically do custom programming. And I don't know that you were involved in the public-facing website, but my memory is that when websites became a thing in the mid-'90s, we were also kind of slow to the game there. Am I right? We were slow to the game in, in terms of websites, in terms of uh, having access to the office via email, um, doing memberships on websites, doing tournaments on websites. I know I went to three or four delegates meetings where there was a motion, it is the sense of the U.S. Chess Federation that we should be able to submit tournament results online. And that's usually as far as it got. And what's the reason? Was it failure of imagination? Was it resistance to change? I, I'm really not sure. Some of it was just that I don't think anybody knew how to do it. I don't think there was anybody around who had who had the expertise to do it. Um, the there really wasn't a programmer on staff. Um, they had a guy on staff who was a web guy, and he put up a version of the website um, in about 2002, and they had another guy who was was hand coding HTML stuff for that. And, but they really didn't have an organized and coherent website, and they didn't have anything handling what I would call back-end operations, which is, uh, you know, a, a functional, useful membership system that didn't take two weeks to get a, a membership processed and anywhere from two weeks to three weeks to get a tournament rated, which is the situation we were at in 2003. Well, this will flow nicely into a talk about uh, your rating system work. But before we talk about that, let's let's uh, break off and talk about your life outside of chess. 
Uh, you mentioned that you had a business. What, what was that? The business, I, I still have it, but I'm, it's kind of, um, I don't do a lot on it anymore. Basically, I was doing um, contract programming for a number of organizations around Lincoln, uh, and, and then that ended up doing the rewriting the membership system for a company called Cliff's Notes, hmm. which was owned by my father-in-law. Oh, that's interesting. And so I ended up basically being their IT director for about 10 years. And one of my associates and I, one of, one of my assistants and I, we, we did all their programming. That was done in COBOL uh, on an NCR computer. And then in about, we started that in the late 80s, and by 93, we decided we really needed to move into relational database systems. So I said, well, I'm gonna let Tom, that's the other guy, do all the COBOL work for the next year or so, and I'm gonna go learn this Oracle relational database thing. So that was my introduction into relational database technology. Okay. I'm not even going to ask what that means. <laughs> I don't know, but and that, that might be beyond the scope of what are, what we could talk about here. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, is Cliff's Note still family-owned? Uh, no, we sold the business in 1999 to the people who do the Dummies books, mm-hmm. IDG books. And then IG, IDG books sold itself to one of the major publishers. And if I thought about it for a second, I could tell you which one it is. And they made the decision to basically put you don't you don't see the Cliff's Notes, the yellow and black striped books in the bookstores much anymore, because they put them all online. And you have an excellent speaking voice, and you you, you said something earlier about being in radio. So was that a, a, a career path for you at one time? No, it was um, through chess. I had gotten involved in uh, running chess tournaments. And one of the guys who was one of the reporters for the sports um, at, one, at one of the local TV stations came out and did a couple of features at tournaments I was mm-hmm. running, and we got to be friends. And then he switched jobs, and he was working for one of the local radio stations, and he wanted to do a sports talk show at like 4 or 5 in the afternoon. And he said, would I be willing to come be a guest on one of his shows? And I said, sure. And by the end of the first hour, it was, would you like to be a guest every week? And so for the better part of a year, I was on the radio at least once a week for close to an hour. Uh, That got, the reason that I got involved in that is one of the other things that I was doing is in 1991, I started a a, uh, public mailing list for people who were fans of the University of Nebraska sports teams. Hmm. We call it the Husker List. And I, at one point in time, I had over 2,000 subscribers, and we were sending out close to a million email messages a day by the time you figure out all the messages we were doing to all these people. And so that's how hmm. I got online to talk about, you on the radio to talk about uh, Nebraska football, which is, of course, in Lincoln, Nebraska, is a very big thing. So... Is, is that still a big interest? In it, is, it is still a big thing, but I'm not doing the radio stuff anymore. Yeah. Did you talk about other sports as well, or was it all Nebraska-focused? It was largely Nebraska, largely Nebraska football. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did talk a little bit about basketball or whatever the, the sport of the mm-hmm. season was. But in Nebraska, you know, they, they say there's, there's two seasons. There's the football season and getting ready for the next football season. <laughs> right. Um, and you have other hobbies besides chess. Uh, I think baking bread is one. Yeah, I got involved in that. Um, by then, I was working from home, and my wife was working at the University of Nebraska, and she didn't get home till like 6 or 6.30 at night because she had a, a strange schedule where she was off Friday afternoons, but Monday through Thursday, she was there till she didn't get out of the office till 6. So I started doing all the cooking at home, and I started... Um, getting involved in baking bread, we'd gone out and bought one of those bread machines, and it took me about a year to figure out I can do better than that. Mm-hmm. So I started mixing mixing the breads up by from hand and, and shaping mm-hmm. them, and 
I still do pretty much all our own baking. It's, it's a rare day when we go buy a loaf of bread. But the only thing I will buy is hot dog buns because I can't make hot dog buns as good as the stuff you get at the grocery store. Okay. Um, so let's move back to the rating system and, and the IT work you did there. And, boy, if Robert's rule of, of order makes my head swim, it's not compared to our complicated rating system, at least to uh, this words guy who's not a math guy at all. So talk about your work. Well, as Part of the rewrite of all the ratings stuff, um, all, all the computer stuff, first we did the membership system, and once we thought we had the membership system working, then I started looking at the rating system, and I got talking to the, the members of the rating committee, especially the chair, which is Mark Glickman, and reading the procedures and going back and researching the history of U.S. chess ratings, and I had about seven different sets of rules to these are the rules for how you compute ratings and I started figuring out what doesn't work very well and what didn't work very well at the time was corrections. It's not at all difficult to imagine putting in a tournament and finding out afterwards oops I put in the wrong ID or Bob didn't win this game Joe did and so the way that they had to correct those at the time was literally they had to, by hand, compute the, adjust, the corrected ratings for every player affected, which in a large tournament, if you change the rating between two people, that can ripple to a dozen or more other people. And they, they would have to compute those by hand and then go in and manually update the, uh, the information in, in the tables to change somebody's rating from whatever it was to whatever it should be. And I watched Larry King, the guy who was doing that, I watched him spend one full day making a change to 12 results in one 50-player event. I'm saying that's just not practical. And as a result, there was, there was a stack of rating corrections that needed to be made sitting on Nancy's desk that has to have been at least six inches high, and some of them went back months. So I said, we've got to have a system that's better than this. This is this is really screams relational database and the ability to go in and correct information. And then I said, but if I correct information, how do I recalculate the ratings? And I came up with the idea of what we now call re-rating, which is to say, every week we go through and we recompute what all the events that have been modified or added since the last time we did we did a re-rate and we figure out what should the rating be now based on what we know now whatever corrections or changes or other information that has come in in the meantime what would it be now and then I went to the uh, I think it was the the first tournament in Phoenix and spent the better part of three lunches basically selling that to a member of the ratings committee because his first reaction was, this won't work. <laughs> and I said I had to basically prove to him that the concept of re-rating was mathematically sound. And it took, it was Ken Sloan who I had to convince of that, and he's a, he's a college professor in, in computers, so this was certainly more his area of expertise than mine. But I did eventually convince him that it would work. And so I got started on the programming, and it, it, it had to have the ability to, whenever you change an event, then when you come back, you have to re-rate, and you have to figure out what the updated ratings were, and then use those for somebody's next event and next event. And so you get kind of a, a cascade principle. If I change one rating in this event, that could change, or one player in this event, that could change six or eight players' ratings in that event, which could change 15 or 20 players in subsequent events, which could change five or 600 in subsequent events. And so it's very possible that if you make a change to an event from a year ago, by the time you get through that, you could update over you know, 100 or more or 500 or even 1,000 ratings. I think one of the examples was was we had a player um, that they had that it actually happened. There was a tournament held in California, a scholastic tournament, and there was a player whose ID was used by mistake. And the ID belonged to a master living in New Jersey, and so this master living in New Jersey was 
indicated as having played in this little tournament in California and lost like three out of five games. And so his rating went down like 150 points, and he was not happy about it. So I said, we've got to be able to do better than this. So we figured it out that when you change it, you just all these changes ripple forward, and um, that has been very successful. And interestingly enough, after I wrote that, I then went to the uh, Olympiad that was in Turin and ended up sitting down with several members of the FIDE ratings committee and explaining to them, this is how we do it, this is why we do it, and this is why it works. And their reaction was, well, of course it does. <laughs> but they, then they also said, but that's not the way we're going to do things because we're FIDE. FIDE, their, their principle is your rating is fixed for a month. So any games you play during that month, we start with the same initial rating for you for any of the games in that month, and then we, all, we end up computing a new rating for you. That becomes your rating at the start of the next month. That's completely different from the way we do it in U.S. Chess. In U.S. Chess, each tournament is a unique rateable event. So we take all of the games in a section in a tournament and we rate them as one big block, and we figure out what everybody's new rating is, and then that becomes their initial rating for the next tournament that they play in, and on and on and on. So... So if there's a change that comes out of this meeting, just for sake of argument, in uh, the ratings formula, are you still the guy that does this, or do we I'm have others? I'm currently still doing it. Um, I've actually got a meeting with Carol where we've been discussing in email. Um, U.S. Chess has a major program in, in effect to basically redo, refresh all of its technology. And that started with the membership system, and that system came online July 7th of last year. And it's time now to start talking about what do we do with the rating system, and do we want to basically do it the same way we did with the membership system, or do we want to maybe look at something different? So she and I are going to be talking about that, and I do not yet know where exactly that's going to be go, but I expect I will be at least an advisor in that process for the next several years. Have you ever been contacted by any other groups to explain our rating system because they were thinking they may want to use it for their own purposes? Um. I'm talking I did, about outside I did, of chess. I did talk to, uh, I have not talked to anybody outside of chess. Actually, the guy who has done that is Mark Glickman. Mark Glickman, who is a, a stati statistics professor at Harvard and has uh, written a number of journal articles on, the ra on ratings of competitive type events. Uh, Mark came up with... Uh, he, he is the author of, of the rating system that's used in Australia. It's called the Glico rating system. And it's similar to the U.S. chess rating system, which actually dates back to the work of another college professor, Arpad Elo, back in the 50s. And in fact, virtually all of these rating systems, because I've, I've read information about ratings in um, British football and tennis and bowling and golf, and they all call them ELO ratings because they're all basically using the principles that Arpad ELO set down in, in the 1950s. Yeah, that, that's interesting, but they don't, the other organizations that you mentioned, their ratings aren't as granular as ours. They tend to use bigger buckets than we do. Yes and no. Um, they aren't as precise as ours, but Elo actually wasn't particularly happy with the precision that U.S. He thought the rating should be no more than a three-digit number. Hmm. And when it came to a four-digit number, he was not particularly happy with that. He would really hate the current system where everything is carried in floating point to six or eight digits to the right of the decimal point. This raises a, another interesting question to me, I, and I wonder if there's any history behind this or if it just happened. When I have a lot of dealings with the media, and if I give someone's rating and I explain the rating system, and let's just say I tell them that it's 2,000, they will inevitably write it as 2, 000, whereas we always write it without the comma. Is there a reason we've chosen not to use the comma? None that I'm aware of. There's... Um 
grammatically, uh, four-digit numbers can be written with or without commas, and some organizations choose to do them with and others choose to do them mm -hmm. without. Uh, by the time you get to five digits, the, a comma or some sort of separator between groups is, is recommended. In the U.S., we use a comma. In Great Britain, they use a period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot now about your uh, national level of service, but you've also spent a lot of time at state level. Um, and because what you just mentioned about grammar, that reminds me that you have some experience as a chess journalist. Uh, you edited the gambit for the Nebraska is it State Chess Federation? Yeah, the Nebraska State Chess Association. Association. So talk about your chess journalism days. Well, I that was one of those, um, it sort of happened thing. Um, the guy who was doing the magazine was basically typing it, and he got to the point where, for one reason or another, he couldn't or wouldn't do it anymore, and I happened to have the be the only person on the, the state board who had a word processor. <laughs> so I ended up doing the magazine on my little word processor, and then over time we kind of developed a, a cleaner, nicer format for it. Um, most of the writing was actually done by much better players than myself when we had three or four of us, and literally we would get together on a Saturday or Sunday at the Cliff Notes offices, and basically take over their, their their word processor systems and put together an issue of the magazine, and then I would run it down to the printers and get it ready for mailing. Mm -hmm. Do you happen to remember which uh, word processing program it was? Uh, it was a word processor system that was put out by NCR. Uh, it uses it used something close to word perfect in terms of in terms of the uh, the, the underlying system okay. and how long were you president of the nebraska association mm, about 10 years give or take it got to the point where like two or three meetings in a row i said does anybody want to take over as president and the first time somebody said yes i said you're it <laughs> <laughs> was there any work that you did in nebraska that you're particularly proud of um one of the things I was particularly proud of was, was an article that I kind of uh, encouraged one of our local experts to write and went through multiple drafts with it. And we liked the article so much we submitted it to the Chess Journalists of America for, for an award for the best instructional article. Now, we lost. We came in second. We lost to an article written by Yasser Sarawan. Hmm. Now, the interesting thing about that is... That year, the U.S. Open was in Portland, Oregon, and I, I went out there. That was my first year as a delegate, and I'm sitting there in, it, in the, the area by the bar at like 1 o'clock in the morning, and Elliot Winslow comes up to me and says, you guys should have won. Huh. And he says, and I said, what? And he says, you guys should have won best instructional article. You don't expect a local expert to get a complex thing like coordinate squares right. You expect Yasser Sirawan to be able to write a good art, instructional article. Mm -hmm. And he was one of, the, he's one of the judges, but apparently he was outvoted two to one. Okay. And I, I see that you had another local uh, organization, the Lincoln Chess Foundation. What was that, and what was your service with them? The Lincoln Chess Foundation is a very interesting organization. They were the first 501c three in chess that we know of. Um, the uh, ACF claims otherwise, but um, it was put together by a local lawyer who was, his, his area of expertise was, was tax law, and he applied to have the uh, 501c3 for, for the Lincoln Chess Foundation, and the IRS kept turning him down. And so finally, he had to go to Washington on some other matter and literally sat on the guy's desk at the IRS mm -hmm. for two days before the guy finally was convinced, yes, this should be a 501c3 organization. About what year would that have been? About 67. Okay. And does the foundation still exist? You know, I, I'm really not sure. I dropped off the board uh, at one point and another person took it up and I haven't followed it much for the last several years. And what was their reason for being? Uh, the Lincoln Chess Foundation was organized by the Lincoln Chess Club as a way to um, 
be able to raise funds to support chess activities in Lincoln. And they supported the Lincoln City Championship, and they supported some school programs, and they bought chess sets and gave them to schools. And we continued with that during the years that I was the president of the foundation. Okay. It's funny. It never even occurred to me that there had to be a first 501c3 in chess. Uh, so... Uh, well, as far as I know, that was the first local foundation ever to, to get that status. Now, I can say the uh, American Chess Foundation claims they had it in the, the 1930s, but it's not clear that it was 501c3. Mm -hmm. Do you happen to know how long that IRS designation goes back? Because I didn't think it was that old. I, did, I don't think 501c3 existed in the 1930s, yeah. which is why I don't think they had it. I think they had something similar, but 501c3, I think, was developed in the late 50s, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. um, I did research it once because I was kind of curious, and, and, and uh, Frank Watson, who was the, the, the attorney, was, was a very interesting character. The, the local attorneys in, in Nebraska told a lot of very sh interesting stories about the guy. Unfortunately, I never met him. So, as we're nearing the end of this hour, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want our listeners to know about? Mm, no, I think we've kind of covered yeah. a lot of things. Uh, like, like I told you earlier, I could probably tell chess stories from now until next Tuesday and <laughs> probably not repeat myself twice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's been a fascinating romp through the last few decades of U.S. chess history, so thank you very much for joining us, and thanks again for stepping up to the plate as parliamentarian yet again. Well, I wish it was under better circumstances, but um, that when I heard that Ken had died, I turned to my wife and said, they're going to call me and ask me if I want to do it this year. And I said, sure, I'll do it. Yeah, well, you're a good guy. Thank you. And we all miss Ken. So. Very much. Thank you for joining us, Mike. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for listening to One Move at a Time. Our theme music was composed by Alex King, a national master who lives in Memphis, Tennessee. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 educational nonprofit. You can find more information about us at uschess.org, where you can become a member by clicking on the Join button, and you can donate to our cause by clicking on the Donate button. I hope that you have learned something new about how to build chess within your community. Join us next month for another Chess World personality and more good ideas. Thank you.